let's Bible study together. Will we uh, just join me here, if you would? Open your Bibles to First Joshua chapter 2. And uh, I want to, by way of introduction, uh, just introduce you to the topic this way. Um, I'm going to put something on the screen here. So here we go. So when I was a kid, I really loved flipping through a couple of these coffee table books that my parents had of Norman Rockwell paintings. And I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Norman Rockwell paintings, but I loved them. And I would spend hours flipping through those pictures and being absorbed into their detail. And and I would sort of fantasize about the stories they were telling. And, and I would look at all the little things in the stories. And, and as I was preparing for today's message, I was thinking about one in particular called the Family Tree. And this one's pretty funny. Now, I, I didn't put the best copy of it that you'll ever see on the screen. So I encourage you to go looking for it on the Internet after we're done today. Please stay right here, I ask you. And uh, what, what I'd love you to do is, is just notice how our family trees are usually a lot more colorful than we would like to think. And as we go into this story of Jesus' family tree, we're going to find out that there's some pretty colorful characters in Jesus's family tree. And uh, for that reason, we need to be thankful that uh, Jesus saves us and makes us whole, even though we come from a lot of broken and desperate parts, disparate parts. I use a word there that's out of the reserved vocabulary. We're going to read Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 to 18, and then we're going to jump ahead to chapter 6, verses 22 to 25. So Joshua uh, 2, 1 to 18, starts this way. Uh, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. And so they went and entered the house of the prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, Some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. And so the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down from the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when he came out, when you came out of Egypt and what you did to, uh, uh, to Sihon and Og the two kings of Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. 
for the Lord your God is a God in heaven, is God in heaven above, on earth, and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what you are, uh, what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. And so she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. The men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if anyone goes outside your house, well, that's chapter uh, verse 19. I'm going to stop there. So that was verse 18. So there's the story thus far. Then let's jump ahead to chapter 6. And uh, Joshua chapter 6 uh, picks up the story again at the destruction of, Jer of Jericho. Joshua 6, verses 22 and 25 um, simply say this. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath. And so the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. So that's the story of Rahab in a nutshell. And when we meet her, we immediately think of images of a prostitute, don't we? I mean, when you hear that she's a prostitute, most of you have different ideas in mind about that. And they're usually pretty negative when you think about it. But if you do a little critical thinking, there's some pretty remarkable things that we've just learned about her. She was an intelligent and wise lady. She was the de facto head of her household. She was a businesswoman, and she was pious in her pursuit of God. And while we don't know the details of her profession, we can pretty much assume that she's sanctioned by local law. In other words, it's legal. It's, uh, it's like Nevada or someplace like that. You know, it's legalized prostitution. And in very, it's very, very likely that Rahab is not only uh, operating a legal entity, but she's operating one that has some religious significance and is tied in some way to their worship. And so Rahab is, is a tradesperson. Most of the people in the community would have viewed her in the same way they do any other tradesperson, a blue-collar worker. And of course, when it comes to blue-collar and white-collar, you know, there are always some white-collar people who look down on people like Rahab because they think it's beneath their station to do such things. But it was a necessary thing. And isn't it funny how we're living through times right now where people who do essential things are celebrated and praised and people who have less essential things about their nature are pretty much set on the sidelines. Now, for all of 
our discussion at this point, keep in mind that this is Rahab. She's providing something that you could kind of equalize. In your mind, you might think about one of the old Westerns you've watched or something like that, where Rahab is, is uh, running uh, a saloon, you know, and downstairs there's entertainment like cards and pool and a bar and music, and upstairs is the brothel. And this would be the same sort of situation that... Uh, we find our two spies entering into. These guys were smart, if you think about it, because if you're trying to spy out a city and you want to know everything there is to know about a city, going to the local bar and brothel is a good place to start. Two reasons, really. It's easier to blend in there because, after all, outsiders and locals both will be found in places like that. But the other reason that's beneficial is, is that there are not many secrets in a place where alcohol is served and pillow talk is plentiful, right? And so they made a good stop there. But what happened that was so remarkable is they found someone in Rahab who was for them and put herself at risk in order to protect them. And she hid them. She lied about them. She misdirected those who were in pursuit of them. And eventually she saved them from capture by letting them down outside the walls after the gates were closed and then telling them how to avoid capture afterward. Why would she do all of this? Well, she's smart. She's figured out that that life as it's been known in Jericho is about to come to an end. And she's recognized that everything that gives her a sense of security in that moment is not going to continue. But more importantly, she's recognized why. She's recognized that truly the people of Israel worship the real one true Lord God. And she, in her own way, is being pious. She's, she's pursuing that God. She's saying, I can see that life as I knew it has been brought to an end because there is a force and a, a ideology out there that is far more profound than anything I've known up to this point. And so she's not only trying to save her family, but she's also trying to embrace the real power, the real the real one true God. And it would be fascinating to try to find out what happened to her after this story. And we do know this, though. She had a son named Boaz. And we're going to get to know him a little better next week, really, as we get to know the women in his life. Now, the thing that I want you to 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 take away from this is, is that here is a person who works for a living. She works hard for a living. She manages a lot of difficult circumstances. Even though she's a woman, she's clearly responsible for her parents, even her father. And that's something you don't want to miss. And yet she is a critical part of the story of Jesus and our redemption. Now I want to turn to Second Samuel. So if you want to grab your Bibles and open them up again, this time we're doing the second book of Samuel. And we're going to start at chapter 11 and read verses 1 to 5. And then we're going to jump ahead to chapter 12 and read uh, verses 15 to 18. Because we have two ladies we're going to meet this week. Samuel 2, 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 5. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged the Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman 
was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home, and the, women and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Now let's jump ahead to chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, verses 15 to 18. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. Now, this is a very brief overview of the story of David and Bathsheba. I'm going to fill in a couple of blanks for you to try to get this uh, to come to a conclusion and a conclusion in a reasonable amount of time. <clears throat> so if you read the story very carefully, there are a whole lot of things that are being implied between the lines that you don't recognize unless you do a little bit of deep thinking and research. So this would be a great time if you had access to a um, Bible dictionary or, or some sort of, of extensive study tools, or you could just contact your local pastor uh, and hope that your pastor paid attention in seminary and learned how to use the tools too. So if you will trust me, I'm going to share some things with you that you may never have considered about this story. For one thing, Bathsheba was very likely very young. There's every reason to believe that Bathsheba was cleansing herself ritually on her roof after having had her monthly period. Now, women were considered ritually unclean at the time of their regular cycle, and so they separated themselves from the rest of the family until they were purified. So the reason she's taking a bath in a place like her roof and away from the rest of the family is because she hasn't been made clean yet. What's remarkable is David never seems to have noticed her before, and we find out later in the story that her husband Uriah has never slept with her. And this is probably because this was her first menstrual cycle. In other words, he, Uriah's, uh, was pledged to let me repeat that and, and say it backward the right way. <laughs> Bathsheba was pledged to Uriah in the same way you could think of Mary having been pledged to Joseph, and yet they had not consummated their relationship yet. And so, in a very real sense, David was likely guilty of taking a girl who had just come of age in physical maturity and brought her into his house so that he could have her. And you can dig into this a little on your own and see if you come to the same conclusion that I have. But what's really amazing is, is that for all intents and purposes, what we're witnessing here is a abuse of power, a act of sexual misconduct, even 
possibly rape. And we're seeing what the guilt he felt led David to lead uh, to do what we would call murder because it was premeditated and calculated to lead to the death of her husband and all because he couldn't cover up his sin. So without going too far into David's story, because this is really a sermon series about women and these particular women, let us just say that David is very aware that he's done something wrong and he's feeling very ashamed. And this is before Nathan, the prophet convicts him so that he has to repent. At this point, David just knows he's done something dirty, really dirty, uh, reprehensible, awful. In all likelihood, he understood exactly the nature of his crime, and he was trying to cover it up. And so he thought, well, if I can get her husband to come back and he finds out that his wife's now ready uh, for them to consummate the relationship, then that'll take care of everything, except Uriah has more character and a better person by far uh, morally than his boss, the king. The king, on the other hand, has used his authority over this girl to have whatever he wants from her. She is, of course, overwhelmed because he's much, much older than her. He has authority that is not surpassed by anyone else in the kingdom. So, of course, she's going to comply uh, or at least not resist. And then when she finds out, perhaps a month or so later, when she misses another uh, her next cycle, she says, hey, I am pregnant. And so David has to do something. So he tries to fix his problem, but Uriah doesn't cooperate. So then he gets Uriah killed so he can marry Bathsheba. And of course, you know, he's already got other wives and he's got others who are his for entertainment purposes called concubines. So at the risk of sounding like this message is about tearing down David's character, I, I just want you to understand that what he did was pretty dastardly. It was awful. And it displeased the Lord, to say the least. And what happened is, is that he married uh, Bathsheba, and then the baby died. Now, that's all I'm going to say about David. Let's talk about Bathsheba. So if you track him with me and you agree with my analysis that Bathsheba is a child who's just come of age, and now she's pregnant, she's been subjected to an abuse of power, she's been raped, she's been a victim of, you know, having her pledged husband murdered, She's lost her baby, and, and any woman who's carried a child can tell you how traumatic that is, that, that there's more going on than any man will ever be able to understand when a woman loses her child. And then she's got to go as a child or very young lady into a world where there are other women who are also wives, who have sons and children of their own with the king, and they're all in different positions of, of a hierarchy, and uh, she's trying to make her way through this. So she's gone from, from being a girl who lives near the palace to living in the palace and trying to make her way through this new paradigm. And my guess is her feelings toward David weren't particularly good. I wouldn't think that she'd have much good to say about him, but she's also subjected to his authority and has to go along with his uh, uh, plans.
So what does she do? She makes the most of her situation. She tries to figure out how she's going to carry on in the future, and this is what happens. She secures a pledge from David that her next-born son, Solomon, will succeed David as king, and certainly he did. King Solomon was known as the next king after David and the wisest king who ever lived uh, up to a point. And this was all Bathsheba's doing. Bathsheba controlled her circumstances the only way she could. She was, like most women, marginalized in this time, considered more like property than human beings. And they were uh, objectified. Their bodies were not their own. Their minds weren't their own. And so these women had to do what they could with their circumstances. And I dare say that that's still true in many, 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 many parts of life today. And so I have to ask this question, and I wonder if you've thought about this already. You know, now that we've met Tamar and Rahab and now Bathsheba, I wonder if you're thinking, why would God put these ladies in the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I, I wonder why this would be. And I have to come to conclusions that I think are reasonable, but they are, after all, based on the Spirit's influence on my thinking and my prayer about these passages. And the first thing that I realize is, is that God used these women to accomplish God's larger purpose, which was the redemption of the world. And they certainly serve, along with those who abused them, as an illustration of why the world needs a redeemer. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3, 23 and 24, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Fact is, is there's nobody good enough to purchase our redemption, and we certainly can't redeem ourselves. And so this story of Jesus's lineage gives us a sense that there is nothing but brokenness that results from sin, and there's nothing more more heinous than the oppression and abuse of people who are considered of less value than others. And so by making that part of Jesus's story, if you could just sort of imagine that as Jesus moves from birth on earth toward our redemption and his ascension into heaven, he's gathered all of this history in the net that trails behind him and collected it all and carried it into redemption with him. Picture these women who are victims of men's abuses and societal norms that were out of whack. Consider this young woman who is abused by a person with power and authority over her and her husband is murdered. Consider this this uh, uh, this illegitimate child of Tamar that becomes one of the founding members of the lineage of Jesus. And imagine that they're all part of the collection of sinful, broken, shattered lives that Jesus is carrying forward behind him in a train, like the train of his robe, is carrying all of that history toward the cross and into heaven as he sits on his throne so that the train of his robe has all of that history. And that history is busted, broken, awful people and their victims. So what is God trying to say to us other than 
Boy, do we need a perfect Redeemer. Boy, do we need a sinless Savior. And so I'm going to say that the reason these stories exist is so that we understand that our redemption did not come from any of those people. David, I guess, got to get out of jail card with God because the one thing David prized more than anything else was that God's glory would be evident on earth. And I suppose the only reason he was a man after God's own heart was because he never lost sight of the fact that the kingdom should reign on earth. And he wanted God to reign on earth. Maybe he knew deep down inside what a messed up dude he was. And he said, Lord, if only you reigned on earth, I wouldn't do the stupid things I do, and people I know wouldn't do the stupid things they do. And so perhaps the way to be a person after God's own heart is to care about the things that God cares about, to make the kingdom a reality on earth, because Jesus brought the kingdom to earth, and he rules it with perfect righteousness, even while on earth we live in an imperfected, still out of whack world. So what can we do to emulate his glory in heaven? Perhaps care for the marginalized. Perhaps care for those who are the least and the lost, the widow, the orphan. Perhaps what we do is find a way to live our redeemed lives by imitating our Redeemer. Now, I say all of this with one caveat. We will always be challenged by the Lord to care for the marginalized, which means that during COVID-19, that could be our neighbor who lives alone. It could be our friend or family member from church who doesn't have the internet and can't access what you're experiencing right now. It could be helping Jessica to relieve suffering and poverty in our community through her mission and outreach efforts. All of this is true, and we will justifiably say, yeah, but there are people out there who are taking advantage of others. And the answer I would give you is, is that none, none can measure up to the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And so it is better to err on the side of grace and to give grace unconditionally and love others and try to help them move with you from brokenness to wholeness or Christian perfection or sanctification, however you want to call it. Don't toss something over the wall to them and say, here, I know you're outside the, the, the city walls and you're, you're marginalized, so here's a little handout. Go to where they are and walk them toward the center with you. Walk them towards the perfect Redeemer, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what we're all moving towards with our lives. Whether we're sitting in our basement waiting out COVID-19, or whether we're back to some sort of productive existence, whether we're working in hospitals and other essential agencies, working hard, long hours, we all must embrace the Redeemer and recognize through the stories of these remarkable women that it is exactly those kind of people that Jesus worked through to accomplish his perfect will for all of creation. He intentionally carries colorful people, broken people, troubled people to salvation. And why? Because he is the glorious, righteous king. And nothing proves that more completely than the complete separation between him and the most righteous people who ever lived. He is the perfect redeemer and no one can come close to his glory 
Therefore, we can recognize him plainly in his great majestic beauty, King Jesus. Do you understand that God delights in using the broken, troubled, disturbed, and out of whack people, and that he actually gets more done through them than he does through the self-righteous, overly dignified and self-important, sanctimonious, pompous people who work at becoming good in the sight of men, but deep in their hearts, they're just as broken in the sight of God as the ugliest characters in Scripture. God delights in using people like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba, and all demonstrate God's supreme glory in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and King. May God bless you as you hear the words that I believe come from his heart to yours. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now burn it into the hearts of your people. Help them to see how beloved they are and how it is their brokenness and shame that you turn into things of glory. Thank you for these women who teach us so much about the brokenness of our society. And Lord, use their stories to help us be better than that, to make better relationships between men and women, between people of different races and ethnicities and backgrounds. Help us to make better relations with others that aren't built on what we think is ugly and wrong about them, but built on what is so redeemable in your sight, the same redeemability that bought me my salvation and my welcome into your family. I pray this with my friends, my beloved family of faith, in Jesus' name, amen.